And now would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> Today we want to focus on verses 5 to 10 of this first chapter in the second letter to the Thessalonians. And I will read the entire chapter for context. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all the who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Holy Word of God. May He write its eternal truth on our hearts. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, I come before you today as one of your unworthy servants. This is a weighty and a terrible passage to preach. It is also a joyful thing to be able to proclaim your gospel. And so I pray that you would open my lips to speak your word and that you would open these people's ears and hearts to hear and to understand. I ask that you would work through your word and the Holy Spirit to dig this word deep into our hearts. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, it is popular in our world and in Christian circles to minimize or deny the teaching of our Lord and the teaching of this passage regarding the judgment of God and the reality of a place we call hell. Many books have been written purporting to show or explain how this teaching is not necessary. How this place that we call hell is not real. Many people say, well, let's just focus on Jesus. Jesus, a man of love and a man of mercy and compassion. But I would have to inform you that Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And Jesus talked more about hell than any other writer, author, 
of the Bible. So we must reckon with this. We must reckon with this passage and with others that teach us about the nature of God's wrath and the surety of His judgment. And the Bible says so much about this that we can in no way this morning address all of the questions and all of the implications. But today I want to answer three questions from this passage. And each of these three questions will have three answers. The first question is, how can a good and loving God send people to hell? The second question is, what exactly is this hell? And the third question, what do you need to do in order to avoid this place? So number one, how can a good and loving God send people to hell? And we find the answer for this in verses 5 through 8. The first answer that I would give to you from this passage is from verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just. All of us, every one of us is born with a, an internal desire for justice. We want justice. We want fairness. We even demand it. We have rights, we think. And when our rights are trampled on, we are not happy. But how do we know what is right and wrong? Well, how do you know how long a foot is? How do you tell? How long a foot is? Twelve inches. How do you know how long that is? You have a ruler. You have a standard by which to judge the length of anything. And so somebody, somewhere, must set the standard for what is right and good and just. And you know, we want to set that standard ourselves. The problem with that is, we're selfish, we're biased, and we don't know all the facts. But God does know all the facts. God is the only one who can set this standard rightly. 1 Samuel 2.3 says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The Lord knows, and so the Lord can judge justly. Furthermore, God is the only one who is completely impartial. Romans 2, 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Even in matters of race, even in matters of family, tribal connections, even in matters of culture, we have our preferences, we have our biases, as much as we would like to deny it. God shows no partiality. God is no respecter of persons. God is the only one who is ultimately just. So how can a good and loving God send people to hell? Because God is perfectly just. God is the one who sets the standard of what is right and what is wrong. Secondly, if God really loves us, He will judge those who afflict and persecute us. Look at verses 5 through 7. 
The Apostle Paul is telling the Thessalonians that their persecution and their, their holding up and enduring under suffering is the evidence that God is just in his judgment. You see, we all long for justice. We are born with this. And it frustrates us when people get away with crimes, especially crimes against us. It offends us. In fact, if God truly loves us, it would be wrong, it would be sinful, it would be evil for him to overlook the sins of others against us. Paul writes to the Thessalonians that the very fact that they are still growing in faith and in love for each other in the face of this persecution testifies to the just judgment of God. How else can we endure? How else can we endure injustice and persecution and affliction if not for the confidence that God will judge and that God will set things to rights again and that God will punish those who commit injustice against us. God says in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Would you want to serve a God? Would you want to serve a God who allowed unrepentant rapists and murderers the same blessings as he has promised you? Would that God seem very loving? Absolutely not. This passage reminds us that in the day of judgment, God will inflict vengeance on those who have wronged us and rejected him. Faith in this God who will perfectly execute justice is what enables us to endure to endure the worst kind of suffering and affliction. This righteous vengeance of God demonstrates the love of God. And number three, how can a good and loving God send people to hell? Well, if God has offered us a part and a place in the kingdom of God, then there must be somewhere else for those who are not worthy to be a part of that kingdom. Otherwise, our sacrifice and our suffering is useless. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. This point flows out of the previous one and is similar to it. If God has prepared a place in the kingdom for those who are worthy, as it says here in verse 5, then there must also be a place for those who are not worthy. Furthermore, God has established the qualifications for those who would be worthy. Remember, this is the only God, the only standard by which true justice and righteousness can be measured. And if he just let in anybody into his kingdom, that would not be loving. That would not be good. God has said repeatedly in both the Old and the New Testaments that the penalty for, de- for sin is death. The soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. Furthermore, we are reminded time and time again that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we are to have a place in this kingdom, if we are to be worthy to be in this kingdom of God, we must renounce sin. We must surrender to Christ. The book of Mark records in Mark 1.15 
what Jesus' first message was as he began his ministry. And it says that he said this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the message that must be heard and obeyed if we are going to be worthy of the kingdom of God. And so if the penalty for sin is death, and if we all have sinned, as the Bible says we have, and if the requirements for entering the kingdom of God are repentance and trusting in Christ, then for God not to have somewhere else prepared for those who reject that message would mean that he is not a good God. After all, he has been incredibly loving in even providing a means of escape for us. John 3.16, the, the most, probably most well-known verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world. He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, that's die, but have everlasting, eternal life. We all deserve death. We all deserve death because we all have sinned. And God would be right and God would be just to send us all to hell. That is what we deserve. You want fairness? You want justice? That is the definition of fairness and justice. But, God loves us. The fact that he, out of his love, provides himself, God himself coming to earth to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sin. This makes it even more critical that there be a place of wrath for those who reject his love. What could be more of an insult What could be a more infinite crime against a holy God than to reject his love and to reject the solution that God provides at great cost to himself? The solution that God provides in order to save us from ourselves and to save us from his wrath and his judgment. And we turn our nose up and reject that. We have just insulted a holy, infinite God. If God is good and God is loving, there simply must be no room for sin and sinners in his kingdom, in his heaven. And for him to not judge those who refuse his gift of salvation would be a terrible travesty of justice. So number two, what exactly is this hell that we're talking about? Verses 9 and 10 give us some clues. This passage tells us that the day of the Lord is coming. It is coming. When he will be revealed in flaming fire with his mighty angels. And oh, what a terrible and a glorious day that will be. And when he is revealed, everything that we are, everything that we have done will be perfectly shown for what it is. And the fire of the Lord will expose and reveal the things. It will burn up that which is unworthy 
and only that which is worthy will remain. The day of the Lord is referred to many times throughout the Scriptures. It's referred to as the day of judgment, the day when everything will be set to rights once and for all. Justice, genuine justice will finally prevail. And what about those who have rejected him? What will happen to them? Where will they go? We've already seen that there will not be a place for them in the kingdom of God. And they will receive their just reward. So what do we know about this judgment? Well, first of all, we see in verse 9 that this punishment is eternal destruction. This is a state of eternal death, eternal punishment. And it corresponds to the Christian's hope of eternal life. You cannot have the hope of eternal life without there also being the reality of eternal death. All of the passages that talk about this, talk about them together. If you're going to deny the eternality of hell, if you're going to deny the eternality of the justice and judgment of God, then you must also be prepared to deny the eternality of life eternal. You cannot have it both ways. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that at the judgment, those on his left will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He will say to the unrighteous, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And probably one of the most graphic descriptions of this is found in Revelation chapter 14, where it says that those who do not fear God and give him glory, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be drinking that. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. It's a, ter- it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to think about. It's a terrible thing to contemplate. Tortured by fire. Forever. Suffering the incredible pain and agony. With no hope. Absolutely no hope of relief or of rest. And if you go to this place, if you go to this place, the reality is that once you have been there a hundred years, even after the worst possible suffering, you will be no closer to the end than when you first came. Eternal death. Dying once is bad enough. But the second death is eternal. Forever. Hebrews 10. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What else do we know about this place, this destruction, this punishment. We see here that it is not only eternal destruction, but it is eternal destruction away from the presence of God. It isn't just the fire and the sulfur that will torment you. This passage tells us that we will be separated from the presence of God. Do you know what that means? Do you know how that might be? No, you don't. Not only 
will there be the absence of anything good, but there will be the unrestrained evil because God is not there. There will be absolutely no power to change any of this. Do you realize that God is the source of all things that are good? Without his presence, there will be nothing left but evil. You will be subject to a world where there is nothing that is any good at all. Nothing. Because all good comes from God. And following close on the heels of that, we see that we will also be separated from the glory of his might. Not only will there be the absence of anything good and the unrestrained horrors of evil, but there won't be any way to change it. Because God is the only one who can change it. And God's not going to be there. We are so dependent on the goodness of God that we cannot even imagine what this might be like. In this world, God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God restrains evil through the use of law by governments. God protects us. Even those who are sinners, He gives the benefit of common grace. But in hell, there will be no restraint of evil whatsoever. So our third point, what do you need to do in order to not go there? Three things this passage tells us. Verse 8 tells us that this vengeance will be inflicted on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, in verse 10, we are told that the saved will be those who have believed the testimony of the apostles regarding the gospel. So if we want to avoid this terrible fate, it seems obvious that we must know God, that we must believe the testimony of the apostles, and that we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to know God? Well, it must mean more than a simple understanding of the facts about God. For James says in his epistle that even the demons believe and tremble. The demons know more about God than you do, perhaps. If a test were given in theology, the demons would pass. They know. Romans 1 says that sinful men knew God. They knew God. But they did not honor Him as God. Neither did they give thanks to Him. And so they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Jeremiah 4.22 says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. So this knowledge, this knowing God, must be something more than mere knowledge or belief. It has something to do with honoring God as God, with recognizing His rightful place in authority over you and I. This knowledge has something to do with gratitude for what God is, for who He is, for what He's done this knowing of God. 
must be experienced. Secondly, we must believe the testimony of the apostles and the scriptures. The apostles, through the writings of the scripture, have revealed to us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. They have taught us the truth. The truth about who he is. The truth about what he has done to provide for our redemption. And we must believe their report. We must believe their witness. We must believe that Jesus is who they said he is. And if you don't trust Peter and Paul and John and James, then you can't trust God. God who has sent his message of the good news through their testimony. Finally, we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could, at least theoretically, you could know about God. Theoretically, you could even believe the testimony of the apostles and still not be saved. I believe the demons know about God. I believe that they, they believe the apostles. But what more is there to do? Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. What? I thought, I thought the gospel was all about believing. What's this talk about obedience? Well, to understand this, you must understand what the message of the gospel really is. The reality of the gospel is that because of his great love for us, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to this earth, became a man, and has taken on, taken on himself the punishment that we rightfully deserved. He did this because we have no hope in ourselves. No hope. Without God, we are hopeless. There is no way that we could ever repay the debt that we owe. An infinite debt. And God would have been just to leave us there. In that state, we didn't even desire to please God. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's you, that's me. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are worthless. Hopeless. But God, two of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible, but God, he didn't just leave us there. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He didn't wait until we got to be something before he loved us. No, he loved us when we were his enemies and made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. The promise of God is that if we trust in what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. But this trust, 
This trust is more than just believing with our heads. This trust is surrendering. We can no longer go our own way and do our own thing. We must surrender to His way. We must do what He requires. He must be Lord. He must be the master of our lives. Otherwise, what are our options? We will continue in our rebellion and in our sin. And we will continue to be subjected to His wrath. This is the obedience of the gospel. God commands us to repent. That is to turn away from our own desires and turn to Him in faith. This is a command. Repent. Even the ability to do this, however, is the gift of God. Jesus said in John 6.39 that the will of God the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son of God and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's what God wants for all of us, for each of you. Furthermore, He says later in John 6 that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws Him. We are dependent on Him. We are dependent on Him for a solution, for an escape. We are dependent on Him for faith and repentance. Without Him, we are hopeless. We are dependent on the goodness and mercy of God to rescue us from His own wrath and judgment. But if we reject this gift, if we reject this, we have an awesome and a terrible responsibility. Romans 3, 4 says, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Are you going to presume on that? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking, self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the question is not, are you going to obey? The question is, who are you going to obey? You will obey. You will either obey the gospel or you will obey unrighteousness and you will suffer the wrath and fury of God. This gospel of Jesus Christ is not just something to be believed, but something to be obeyed. And if you reject this offer, if you reject this provision, this solution, this grace, this mercy, this love of God, if you reject that, there is no hope left. There is no other way Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You're not going to find it anywhere else. And if you reject this offer, you will be even more liable to the fullest wrath and fury of God. What an insult. What an insult to the love of God. If you would reject His offer, of salvation. 
My friends, I don't know how to say this any more gently. If you refuse the solution that God has provided for your sin, you have just signed your own death warrant. So how are you going to respond to God's love? Who are you going to obey? If you do nothing, if you do nothing, you will go on to destruction. That's the default setting. If you continue to reject God long enough, at some point, and we don't know when that point is, but at some point, the scriptures say that he will send a strong delusion so that you will believe what is false. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We didn't read that yet, but it's there. If you resist long enough, there comes a point at which God will give you over to your desires. He will basically say, okay, have it your way. And when that happens, the righteous judgment of God will come down on you with all its fury and with all, all its wrath, and you will get what you deserve. God will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. And at that point, the scripture tell us, scriptures tell us it would be better if you had never been born. Well, maybe you say, yes, yes, eventually, I will trust in Christ. I will surrender to him. But first, I want to have some fun. I want to live life a little bit. My friend, that's an infinitely terrible mistake to make. How can you do that? You're basically thumbing your nose at the God who designed and created you. And you're saying, I think I know better than you. How arrogant. I think I know better than you what is good for me and what I will enjoy most in life. You're despising the gift of God in Jesus Christ who has shed his blood for your sins. Who has shed his blood to purchase your everlasting joy. And you want, you want to trade that in for some momentary pleasure, some fleeting pleasure of life. What an awful trade to make. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that to whom much is given, much will be required. You can't plead ignorance on this one. At least not after this morning. You, my friend, have been given much. Perhaps you're here today and you've made a profession of knowing God, a profession of believing God, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, but perhaps you've never obeyed. Maybe somebody promised you somewhere along the way that if you just walked the aisle or said a certain prayer, that that was your ticket. Escape from hell. But your life is still a life of selfish ambition. 
you have not yet surrendered to God as the Lord and master of your life. Your first concern is not with God's glory, but with your own well-being. You still live in sinful ways. The Bible is very clear that those who live in sin without repentance cannot see God. This is not an option. You still live in sinful ways and that sin doesn't grieve you. Today you sit here and you squirm nervously inside because you fear the terrible wrath of God and in your heart there is no gratitude for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Friend, today is the day of salvation. Regardless of what you were told or what you thought about your previous experiences, make your calling and election sure today. Today is the day of salvation. Not yesterday. Today. You have an opportunity. For some of you, I hope many of you, this truth about the righteous love and judgment and justice of God causes you to love Him even more. God will keep those who are His. Your continued growth in love and righteousness is proof that He is just and that He will judge sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And brother and sister, worship God, adore Him, thank Him, praise Him, live for Him, obey Him, commit afresh to serving Him with all you've got. All the chips go in. Every one of them. Continue steadfast in the faith that He has given. So that as it says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. Not our name, His name. He's the only one that has any name that's worth glorifying. And that He may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Now after we pray, I'm going to sit down. And we're going to sing song number 68 again. And I want you to do business with God. I'm not going to prescribe what that means or how that looks or what formula to follow to make sure you get it done because I don't want you to have any confidence in the flesh. Your confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I don't want you to have a false confidence that just because you did something like walk down the aisle or stand to your feet or whatever that you have now known God and obeyed His gospel. No, this requires surrender of heart. This requires repentance, commitment to follow Jesus, no matter what. And if you truly do surrender to Christ, other people will know. They must know. So tell someone. And ask for help if you don't understand. Ask for help if you're not sure where you're standing with God is. If you feel uncertain about how to know whether or not you are saved. Many of us have put our confidence in something other than Jesus Christ. 
And our hope rests on an experience that we had when we were a child. And it may very well have been a very good and legitimate experience. I'm not calling that into question at all. I'm just saying if your hope and your confidence is in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, you are not one of his. Many of us here will be happy to pray with you, to pray for you. But you must take the initiative. You must respond to the call of God in your life. I cannot read your heart. None of us can read your heart. Only God can do that, and only God can do the work of changing your heart. Let's pray. Our loving and just Heavenly Father, We come before you now in silence. In humility. We come before you in gratitude. But also with reverence and fear and awe. For you, O oh God, our great God a just God. We ask that you would come through the presence of your Holy Spirit and that you would work in each of our hearts. Bring conviction of sin. Bring repentance that leads to salvation. Work in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. We thank you for the gift of the good news, the gospel, the good news in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has purchased our salvation with his own blood. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing. Number 68.